Hey, welcome to the Harry Man Show number 32. And guys, I have a treat for you. I get to talk to rock and roll royalty today. Mr. Kofi Baker is on the show. Someone I've looked up to myself and his father's drumming throughout the last couple of decades. He's the author of a book called The Forgotten Foot. He's also played in many bands like HOM with Chris Pollan. And even Eric Clapton himself. How are you doing, Kofi? Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> Good, man. Like I said, how is everybody out there in the uh, <laughs> internet world or whatever we're on? Yeah, we're reaching across. But <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's a, it's a great honor. I mean, you're someone I've been looking through drum magazines and, you know, replicating your styles or, you know, uh, setups and stuff like that. It's really cool to have you on. Well, don't do that too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, and kind of give a little bit of a backstory. And I know you've been trying to shake off a stigma your whole life. You, you're not exactly the, the rock star kid everyone thought you were. You kind of had to go through your own trials and put yourself through the motions and really become what you are. And that's why I've gained a lot of respect. Yeah, I mean, I was just, yeah, I was just watching the Rocket Man documentary. And I was like thinking, man, Albert John got it lucky. He got like all these, you know, hits and all these record company and all the people we got paid. I mean, I was my my thing was like, yeah. I mean, my dad was some this rock star, but he left home when I was seven, mm-hmm. um, and I never really saw him that much. You know, I had to like beg beg for my mom to let me go see him to get a drum lesson and stuff, and mm-hmm. so he didn't really. Um, he was no help at all. I mean, I got my first break. Uh, Steve Marriott, Humble Pie. Oh, nice. His manager walked into a bar when I was playing in a, a cover band in a bar in London. His manager saw me play and was like, wow, who's that drummer? Steve needs a drummer. And uh, asked me if I wanted to do it. And, you know, when he found out who I was, he goes, oh, that's great. You know, so that was my first little pro gig was um, with Steve Marriott when I was like 18. What luck that his manager walked into a bar. <laughs> and that's that just this is to kind of uh, not interrupt you, but that's one thing I want to express that you're, you're self-made. Uh, and a lot of people that are brought up in the rock star kids' world get a different perception. But yeah, you you put your drum sets together. You went out there on the road. You did it yourself. I just wanted to get that out there to everyone that you're the real deal. Yeah, I mean, I you know I had first drum kit. I mean, my dad did leave a um, one of his kits in the uh, in the garage. Nice. And actually, was in this shed at the bottom of the garden, and I I found that kit and I was playing on it. And um, my dad had long gone by then, and and mum. We had no money, and my mom needed to buy a fridge. The fridge blew up. We're like, let's sell the kit. So we sold my dad's kit to the Rock and Roll Hall of, uh, not the Rock and Roll Hall, the Rock and Roll um, uh, Hard Rock Cafe. That was it. Oh, nice. It was the Hard Rock Cafe. We sold it to the Hard Rock Cafe, and we bought a two sofas, a fridge, and another drum kit. Out <laughs> the one drum kit. So that was my first real kit that I got. That you know wasn't all you know. Beat- and I know, so, um, I know you're uh, self-taught, but was there any like particular books that you were going through with rudiments and stuff like well, that? Well, I wasn't really totally self-taught. I mean, my dad taught me all the rudiments when I was really young, um, and uh, you know, I basically knew all that stuff. So I was playing drums. You know, it wasn't until I got to about nine or ten that I started, um, you know, trying to play with people and playing gigs and stuff. I started playing gigs when I was like thirteen, fourteen. Nice. Um, and then, uh, you know, I would take lessons from anybody, anybody who would give me lessons. So it wasn't really self-taught. I was in London, which was, you know, a very good place to be, a lot of musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I was on the streets when I was 14, 15. We got evicted from my house. So um, I was living in a recording studio in, in Acton, London. And that was a really good point for me because I drummers would come in all the time. Um, Elvis Costello's drummer was there. He came in and... Um, I talked to all these people and I just, I just listened to drummers and pick up stuff and, and I practice like all I do is wake up. I used to sleep on the drum riser. So I'd wake up and play my drums until the band came in and I'd set the band up, you know, set the PA up for them. And then when they left, I'd get back on my kit and practice. So I was playing like, you know, eight, nine hours a day, mm-hmm. just, just practicing and stuff and playing and, you know, but it's really, you know, it's not just learning and getting the lessons, it's practicing. You really have to, it doesn't matter how much talent you're born with. I mean, my dad used to say to me, he used to say things, you know, later on, I went to Italy and I got lessons from my dad because my dad was like, you've got great, you know, um, feel, but you don't have any technique. Your technique is really poor. You just got good feel. And he said, there's three types of drummers or three types of musicians in the world. 
there's musicians that just have the technical ability and there's the musicians that just have the feel, mm-hmm. but then there's musicians that have the feel and the technical ability. And he goes, that's what you want to be. Yeah. And that's what made me think, yeah, I've got to really practice my ass off and, you know, you know, practice everything. So, so I wasn't completely self-taught. I mean, I did a lot of, my dad would give me stuff. He gave me lots of exercise. I put it, my dad was living in Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. So I'd fly to Italy or, or hitchhike to Italy or however I could get to Italy, I'd get there. And I'd spend, you know, a couple of months with my dad and he would, you know, teach me stuff. Um, I'd have to, you know, go irrigate the olive farm or go build a ditch or something like this for, for you know, half an hour for the drum lessons. I'd have to do like six hours, you know, hard labor in his olive farm. Wow. Um, and then he took all my drumsticks, you know, because <clears throat> I was a poor kid and I'd, I'd save up all this money and buy myself, a, you know, a bunch of drumsticks and go out to Italy. And I showed up with this bag of drumsticks that I just bought from all my glass collecting. I used to do glass collecting in a place in Camden Town, you know, kid like walking around collecting glasses. So it wasn't even allowed to be in the bar, but had to make money. Yeah. So I had all these drumsticks, and I went to my dad to, to get some lessons. He picked all my sticks out and goes, these are tree trunks. and just burnt them. Oh. And burnt all my sticks. <laughs> and gave good. me a pair of these crappy 7As, which he used. And oh. I was like, I was using two S's. I know, you know, two S's are like military sticks. They're oh. like the huge massive sticks. And he gave me a set of seven A's to like top sticks. Oh. You know, so, um, you know, obviously I, when I got back to England, <laughs> threw his chopsticks away and got myself some uh-huh. navy poles or whatever he called them. He called them something like that. Because <laughs> they was like big drumsticks. I mean, you know, I use, um, I use super five B's now. So I'm still, nice. still slightly bigger than the average stick. And are you still um, playing the nylon tip, or because uh, I noticed you've always yeah the nylon tip the nylon tip is only because the way I play I'm kind of a jazz player so I'm, I wear out the tips and this wooden wooden sticks would last not very long because the tips wear out and the sound goes really dull mm-hmm. you know when your tips are worn out and I I wear out the tips of the stick and the rest of the stick would be good mm-hmm. and I'd be like that's such a waste of wood you know I've always been an environmentalist you know about you know trying to you know, Conserve. do the right thing for the environment. So I was like, you know, I got to do something. And somebody said, nylon pit. And I was like, nylon pit? Really? And they sound like, and they sound a little harsher on the symbols if you really listen. Mm-hmm. But no one notices in anything anymore, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so that's more of a I lie. I went to nylon tip. Yeah. So I was going to say, I was gonna, I would say you hear more of the nylon tip in a live setting more than anything else in a recording now. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. yeah. I mean, I noticed when I'm playing, when I was playing, like, like you know, um, jazz gigs and stuff in a smaller venue, I would have to have a pair of wooden tip sticks just for those gigs because the nylon tips are a little bit, you know, bright on the cymbals. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, but I mean, I've been using nylon tips for a long time now because I can use the entire stick. I can wear out the entire stick. Yeah. And a pair of sticks last months with me. I mean, I, I, unless I'm on the road, Mm-hmm. When I'm on the road playing a two-hour show every night, a pair of sticks will last me probably a couple of weeks, maybe two or three weeks. That's actually pretty but good. when I'm at home, they last forever. They last like months. Yeah, I think Steve Smith is oh. saying he got their whole journey tour, which is one pair of big firsts, and I was like, whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah, just... I mean, it just depends on the way you play. I mean, I slant my cymbals. Uh-huh. A lot of drummers have their cymbals flat. I slant my cymbals because my dad always said, slant the cymbals in because... When your cymbal's tilted in, you can use all of that cymbal. You can go all the way to the bell all the way down, and you can still crash the cymbal, you know, on the edge if you want. But when your cymbals are flat, mm-hmm. you really can't get to all those tones. You've really got the crash, and that's it. Yeah. And my dad used to ride on his crashes as well. I mean, a crash cymbal wasn't just the crashing. Sometimes you ride on it, and sometimes I do. Sometimes, you know, I ride on a 16-inch crash sometimes, so for a different sound, you know, and if your symbols are flat, that's going to be kind of hard to do. And uh, one thing I want to kind of throw in there, I'm a huge uh, Terry Bozio fan myself, and I can hear that in your playing oh, a lot. Oh, same here. Yeah, and I can tell in your cymbal work, and you were talking about the symbols being slanted, that's someone that always has everything slanted besides his big gong ride. But, yeah, well, I, can... I mean, I was listening to, uh, yeah, I was listening to Heavy Metal Bebop just early today when I was working out. Oh, nice, nice. Um, that's one of my favorite Bozio records is that that one, and that's that's when... I was like, I think I was like 13, 14 when I first heard that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to play like that. I want to play like Terry Bozio. I mean, that's, that was, he was like my, 
And um the thing is I I noticed you're really into the Austin Autos too. Is that who's that who like led you into that? Um yeah, but my dad was kind of into that too. Oh yeah. Of um course. so yeah, I mean Terry was was very he's very Ostomano person and I'm really into that. I mean when I teach I try to teach my students like, okay, you know, it's it's not so much, you know, how technically you play, it's what you're playing against it which can make it more difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're just playing sixteenth notes on your snare drum, great, but if you start playing, you know, trips on your kick drums while you're playing sixteenth notes on your snare drums and doing stuff against it. So that's where the Ostomado's Independence was my thing because my dad was really good at independence. Yes, I mean, the first thing my dad taught me was all the African stuff, mm-hmm. and then he taught me. I learned backwards. I really learned backwards. I've had to learn all the simple, more standard stuff that everybody plays, like the John Bonham triplets, you know, the Boomer, all that, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I learned later on. I was learning, you know, triplets, but you know, threes because my dad played threes. Yeah. If you hear like. Uh, Blue Condition or um, Had to Cry Today, any of those whoops that he does are three. It's just, you know, three hits on the, on the hands and a kick drum. Uh-huh. But John Bonham was, you know, uh, right, left, foot, right. It was an extra hit. Fours. Yeah. You know, um, so those, I was, you know, I was always doing the threes. I never really learned the, all the stuff that everybody else was playing until later. So I kind of learned the jazz. And my dad would teach me Everything was from the hi hat was on the upbeat, uh-huh. you know, and the right hand was playing the jazz session, uh-huh. and um, and then I'd be playing independence across that, you know, be working on playing my paradiddles and double paradiddles with a snare and bass while I'm keeping the jazz going, and that was the first really thing of independence that I learned. So I learned that before I learned to play, you know, rock kind of stuff. Because when I joined Steve Marriott, Marriott was always saying. Keep it simple, Baker. Keep it simple. Remember, this is a rock band because I was always trying to play, you know, <laughs> jazz chops and bozio fills across, you know, yeah. Harriet's you know, music. That's one thing I want to ask because <clears> I've noticed in your dad's later years, his toms were very flat. Was that something he tried to push on you or he, he walked in the tilted toms? He, well, I mean, he didn't really get to teach me long enough to really push that on me. But you've got to realize I was tiny when I was learning to play. <laughs> I was, you know, I was, you know, I took lessons with my dad from like, you know, all through the ages up until I was like 14, 15 was when I, you know, basically when the last time I saw him for a lesson. So I was kind of small and I was a late developer. Uh-huh. So I was tiny. I mean, when I was playing gigs, people were like, he's got a midget on drums or something. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, he's a midget because I was, you know, underage to be in the bar anyway. Um, so they used to say I was a midget. Oh, you know, because I was really tiny. <laughs> so, that's pretty good. Not, not, not laughing at you, but laughing at the situation. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> and one so thing, where was I? I don't know where I got. What uh, was I talking about? Uh, one thing I noticed I want to point out is your dad played the, the 20 on the right, and you played the 20 on the left. Right. Well, again, that was because my dad was a jazz drummer at first. Yeah. So the 20-inch kick drum was his main kick. Yeah. Um, so when he got a second kick, kick drum, it's like, I'm not going to get the same size, you know, two different size tom-toms a lot of drummers now play two kick toms the same size yeah. it's, to me it's like getting to get a double pedal I know a double pedal you don't have as much response as two kicks Yeah. but um, I always thought why would you have if you're going to have two kick toms have them different sizes so when I was you know my first kick was a 22 inch kick drum because that's the standard when I was growing up uh-huh. um, so when I got a second kick it was like well it's going to be a 20 you know it's gonna be, I didn't want a 26 Mm-hmm. So I got a 20. Um, and it's not always I play in that way around. I mean, when I'm, when I'm borrowing drum kits, sometimes I, I have my drum kit set pretty low. I sit really low. I sit with my, my thigh vertical to the ground. You know, so like I sit down to my thighs basically parallel with the ground. I mean. uh-huh. um, so so I'm, I'm pretty low sitter, so my drums tilt in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm playing a if I end up at a gig and all they've got is power toms, I'll put the 20 inch kick on the right so I can, you know, have the toms laugh. Nice. But, but I like the 22 on the right because I feel that my left foot's a bit heavier uh-huh. than my right foot. Cause my left foot's normally not playing. My right foot plays all the fast stuff. And my left foot tends to play eight notes. Unless I'm playing triplets or something, but 
Most of the time, my left foot's playing downbeat. Like, so if I'm playing a fill, because my left foot is always, my whole book, The Forgotten Foot, is all about, if you learn to play like my dad taught me, like your left foot keeps time from everything you play. Mm-hmm. So no matter what you play, you should be able to keep the left foot playing quarter notes, eighth notes, or upbeats. You know, and if you're Steve Smith, you're going to play, you know, triplets, half note triplets or quarter note triplets in your left foot while you're playing as well, which you can do. It's not as easy to do stuff with, but it's, you know, fun to do. Yeah. So if you're playing, you know, if you're playing eighth notes with your left foot and you're going to go play double bass drums, all you do is you take your left foot off the hi-hat and you just play your right foot in between the eighth notes and you've got your 16th notes on your kick drums. Mm-hmm. So... I'm always leading with my left foot, the same my dad. Every bass drum fill that my dad does, his left foot's leading, his right foot's playing the, the opposite beat. So, so when I'm playing a fill and my hi-hat's keeping corner, I'm crossing time and stuff, and my bass drum might not be ready to hit the most. Nine times out of ten, it's not ready to hit the one. Yeah. So my left foot will hit the one on the bass drum at the end of the fill. So... Um, that it's a heavier beat, so the smaller kick drum makes it, you know, less overpowering at the, the 22. If I put them the other way around, sometimes, you know, the 22, I hit it harder. Because, mm. you know, your bass drum beater is more in the center of the drum on a 22 than on a 20. Yeah. So, you're, you know, you're going to get a little bit more power out of that beater being more in the center of the drum than more off to the side on like a 20, 20-inch kick drum. Yeah, and which brings me to my next question. Uh, are you currently playing WFL drums right now? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that was really because of the cream thing. Uh-huh. Um, when I started playing the cream stuff, that was the same builder as your dad's drums too as well, right? Right. Well, I mean, he was, he was the guy, his ancestors, his grandpa, his dad, were the ones that made the drums for my dad. Ludwig now is not the same. Ludwig today don't make drums like they did. And he had the secret ingredients and the secret what the shells were and how how they were made for my dad's kit. So when I started doing this cream gig, it was like, man, let me build you a kit because I know how to build the same sound as your dad. And I was like a bit doubtful at first. And he (laughs) built me a kit. And I started playing it and I was like, man, we would do some recordings. We recorded our first tour. Uh, was, every night was recorded. And I was like, listening back to it, I was like, yeah, the drums just sound, they just sound like my dad's drums. They sound so similar. Yeah. So it was like, you know, it was great. And then the sound really fits to playing the cruise stuff because it's the same sound. So, yeah. And uh, um, you were playing you know, some, so, yeah. some rope tension drums. Was there a different resonance at the time? Because you were endorsing different companies. I think they were called Pace, is what the name of the drums were. They were called Page at the time. Now they're called Hudson Custom Drums. So, oh. The thing with that was I was a DW in Dorsey. I was uh, playing DW drums at the time. When I was with O, with Chris Poland. Oh, yeah, that's um, where uh, I endorsed. H.O., uh, yeah, Chris Poland, that's where you're playing a big potato all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's where I was playing with him for a while, and um, I endorsed DW at that time. So DW built me a drum kit, and, um, you know, it was just some beating and, you know, stuff. So that was the only bad thing, but... But what happened was I was playing with, I was playing DW drums and I said to DW, I said, I need a, another snare drum because you know, my spare snare is a, I think it was a Remo drum or something I was using at the time as a spare snare. And I was like, I need a better quality you know, snare drum. Can you build me another one? They said, well, we've given you this $10,000 drum kit. We're not going to build you another snare for free. You're going to have to pay for it. What? And I was like, well, I was like, and then this guy came to the baked potato. He was building drums for DW. He's one of the guys who built the one-piece shells. It wasn't a Cap Cavalado, it was another guy. Oh, but he okay. worked with DW building building one-piece um, drum shells. And he said to me, he came to the baked potato and goes, if you well, get to have a snare drum that you really want, What's, what are you looking for in a drum? And I was like, well, I've been using like the Ludwig metal drums I had, and you know, I had, I had the Black Beauty, I've got I'll a story about that, it's hilarious. Remind me to tell you about that. But yeah, I had this Black Beauty, and it's great, but they're really loud. And I found that what happened was a snare drum would be overpowering the rest of the kit. So the rest of my kit's wood maple shells, um, and the snare drum, this metal brass drum, or, you know, the DW drum I had was good, but it was a wooden drum. But I always felt that you hit the snare drum really loud, and it kind of overpowers 
the toms because they do a lot of four-stroke graphs on the toms as well as the snare. Mm-hmm. So obviously on the snare, it's going to be a little bit more loud than on the tom. So I said to this guy, I said, is there any way we can build a snare drum that is just a little bit more quiet so that it matches, that it's not overpowering the toms? Uh-huh. And he's like, yeah, I've got a great idea. And he goes, Claro Walnut. And I was going, wow, okay. I've heard of a drum made out of walnut. But, so he came back to me like a couple of months later and said, I've made this shell for you. It's like Claro Walnut, this most amazing piece of walnut. And he steam bent it. It's a one-piece shell. And it was beautiful. And he said, I'm going to get DW to finish it for you. And I said, DW, you're not going to do that. And <laughs> DW told him, they said, well, Kofi has to pay for all this stuff. Oh, wow. So, and I, I don't have any money. I'm playing, you know, the baby tailor for my hundred bucks and teaching in a drum school and uh, I don't have the money to buy a snare. So he said, look, you know what? I'm going to give this shell to my buddy in Orange County who's, who makes Ford drums. He's, he's, got, he's called Ford. Okay. And I was like, great. And he, um, he gave it to this guy, Henry, what's his name? I can't remember Ford, something, not Henry Ford. Um, anyway, Ford, Ford drums. Um, and this guy did an amazing job, put all the lugs on it, put a trick snare on it, you know, and all this stuff for free. Wow. He used this snare drum up for free and gave it to me, and, and it was even fine, and, and a label inside said custom made for Kobe Baker. And I was just like, wow. And I got this drum home, and I played it, and it was just like, it's just the most amazing snare drum, <laughs> you know, you can possibly want. It's just perfect volume, perfect sound. I mean, it's in my studio right now. I still use it for... Nice. A lot of stuff, recordings and all kinds of stuff. Um, and um, so that was, you know, that was how I got my Ford snare drum, which I, you know, play. But anyway, the thing with the, with the rope tension drums were, after that, I was kind of a bit pissed off with DW. I was like, well, you know what? That's kind of shitty. But they know I've got no money and they won't even make this fair snare. Mm-hmm. And I was playing clinics for DW and I was doing the Hollywood drum show. Oh, nice. And I was playing the Hollywood drum show doing my clinic, and there was this booth that, you know, they have all drum kits around, you know, booths and stuff. And there was just one booth, and this guy said, play my drums. And I'm like, what the hell are these things with these <laughs> strings all around them? I go, those are not drums. Drums are like they've got lugs on them, and the tension is one. How the hell? He goes, just play them. And I was like, really? And I was like, okay. And I sat down on this kit, and I started playing it. I was like, Hmm, these drums seem to really sing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, look, there's no bolts in it. There's no, everything's floating on the shell. There's no holes drilled in the shell. The only hole is the air hole. And I was like, that's interesting. And it's like, also, they're always in tune. They're never out of tune. Now, I have a problem, um, the same as my dad, because he had his drums really flat. I don't have my drums as flat, but I play very heavily on the rims. Mm-hmm. So when my sticks wear out, they wear out, you know, in the middle. That's yeah. where they wear out from playing, playing on the rims. So when you play on the rims of drums, you detune them really quickly. Yeah. Especially, the, you know, the, the, the tension rods closest to you just loosen up because you're pounding the hell out of it. Uh-huh. So with these tension drums, that never happens because for a start, you can pound it as hard as you like on the rim, but the lug is not, you know, bolted into the drum so it's, it can move a little bit. So when you hit, when you pound that rim down, you're not loosening that tension rod bit by bit. Mm-hmm. The lug will move slightly down if it has to with the rim. So it won't, you know, be pushing the rim against the lug, which is going to loosen your lugs. Mm-hmm. So that never happens, which was for me was like, wow. And then even, even if your drums do go out of tune or if you do loosen with the lights are hot, they're not going to go out of tune. They're just going to get lower <laughs> because the tension is even all the time. Yeah. The tension can't be uneven. Yeah. So your drum is always in tune. It's just pitch. Yeah. So if you're in a studio or if you're in a live situation and your drum's resonating with the, the room or you know, they can't EQ the resonance out, it's just resonating, you go, okay, give me one second, just one key, any lug you want, and you just turn it a little bit till you hit that unresonant spot of the drum and it's you know, basically not so in tune with its shell. It's oh, not nice. resonating so much. Nice. And you don't have to sit there with the whole drum retuning the entire drum. You just take your pitch. Yeah. So, 
to me, it was like a no-brainer. I told DW to go shove it up their ass, <laughs> sold their drug here. Um, which I had to, at the time, I had a dental bill of a seven grand. I had to sell my DW drums, my truck, and my car. Oh, I'm sorry to hear to that. To pay my dental bill. I'm sorry to hear that. So um, I did that, and, and Paige Drums gave me a brand new kit. So I was like, perfect. Nice. So um, I played them for a long, in fact, I played them up until basically Bill Ludwig gave me this, uh, you know, these, um, these number drums. I played them. I still have my my kit, which I use on gigs where I'm not playing the cream stuff. I use that. It's called Hudson Custom Drums Kit now. Oh, nice. That's that's, but, a, uh, that's really cool of them to do that for you. I mean, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that at the same time, but. That brings me into my next question. Before this whole uh, shutdown happened on us, what were you doing with the Cream gig, and uh, where were you guys traveling? Uh, before the Cream gig, you're saying? No, before we all got shut down on uh, this whole COVID thing. What, what, oh, before we got shut down, or the, the lockdown, yeah. Well, yeah. what happened was, like I said, okay, I flew, my, dad's, my dad died a year, right. year ago now, yeah. a year, a month ago. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, when my dad died, I was on the road in London. I was playing the cream shows in London. My dad, I went to, my dad, I was actually going to go, I was planning to come to London, so I said to my dad, I said, look, let's just bury the hatchet. We're not getting any younger, you know, you're getting really old, you know, it's just cause kind of fallen out over the last, you know, five or six years. His wife, he had, Chrissy was a nightmare, was just nasty to everybody and, and you know, basically, you know, trying to put my dad against this entire family. So oh, wow. he wasn't really talking to me. And I said to my dad, I said, look, we really need to, you know, bury the hatchet. And I really want to, you know, just you know, basically talk to you. So he said, okay, we set up a meeting at my dad's sister's house in London um, before I left on the road. It's just like a couple of months before. Uh-huh. So about two weeks before I was planning to get on the plane to come to London and start my tour, my dad got really sick and lay in the hospital. And I got the call, he's going to die, this is it, he's done. And it's like, can you get any? Can you get here any quicker? And I'm like, I, I don't know, I'll try. And I was looking at planes, and, and it was like it was like a week before I was meant to leave, and all the planes were like, they wanted two, $3,000 extra wow. for my ticket. And I was like, I just don't have the money. I was like, I just prayed for my dad to, to last. And amazingly, he, he started getting better. Huh. Um, for like a, a week and I, I flew in and the first thing I did was you know, my friend picked me up from the airport and I flew in and um, close to the, the hospital where my dad was and went to see my dad and it was like it was it was great it was like the time like you know basically I hadn't seen my dad for you know I don't know five or six years or something oh. and um, you know he was not too well but he was he perked up a little bit so I actually got to spend the time with him and talk to him which was like the best thing I ever had and I was like, well, I've got to go on the road, so I'll come back next week, you know, because um, I've got to go up Scotland and stuff, and I had to build this touring up Scotland. So I was up in, like, Scotland, and we were on our way down. We had a few more gigs in Birmingham and something, mm-hmm. and then my dad died. He oh, just wow. suddenly just took a turn for the worse and died, and it was, like, the night of a gig, so I had to go up the station. Really hard to play when you're really emotional. But, yeah, um, yeah, I understand. You know, I managed to get through the gig, and um, then you know, I, sp- I speak to Eric. Eric was calling me because we were trying to get a funeral together. And, of course, um, Kutsi, my dad's wife, just started taking control of everything and pushed everybody out. And Eric said, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. Uh, I'm out. And everybody was, was bailing on it. And then eventually he pissed off my dad's sister oh. and my entire family. Kutsi just, just pissed everybody off and no one was happy. And then she started taking me down, calling me racist and calling me. And I'm like, what? And she goes, you said you don't trust Asians. I'm black. What you said? I said, agents. We were talking about agents. I was talking about my dad's agent. You were saying that you wanted my dad's agent to organize a funeral. I said, I don't trust agents. How do you possibly think I would say Asians? <laughs> it doesn't even relate to the conversation we're having. Yeah. So, what the hell? You so, were saying agents is what you're saying? Yeah, because we were talking about, she said, well, your dad's agent Nina wants to, you know, uh, do the funeral. I said, well, I don't trust agents. You mean, and the next you, thing I knew, I get an email saying, if you don't, she's not even an agent, she's Caucasian like you, and if you don't trust agents, what do you think of me? I'm black. And I'm like, 
<laughs> what the hell is this coming from? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, and then I suddenly figured out that how was she, how was she confusing Asians with Asians when we were talking about my dad's Asian? Yeah, it just made no sense. So I didn't know what she was trying to be nasty, or I don't know what she was trying to do. But it was really upsetting because the emails were coming. She still sends me emails. I, I get an email. I got an email a month ago from my dad, from Peter Baker, his email address. And I'm like, my dad's dead. Why am I getting an email from my dad? And it's her cursing me out in, email, in an email. I'm like, uh, for one, you can curse me out. But for one, don't use my dad's email address to yeah. fucking curse me out. So I just did the F word. But, That's all right. Um, <laughs> you know, um, it's like, She's just, she has no boundaries. It was just wild because that's upsetting enough getting an email from your dead dad and then it's someone just bitching you out trying to find all the worst things my dad's ever said about me when she was in control and sending them to me. And I'm like, that's really not nice, you know? Yeah, that's, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. And, you know, that, yeah, I, I saw the movie, so I was a little bit aware of the situation. And you were part of that movie as well. If anyone has to check it out, it's called Beware Mr. Baker. It's a great documentary. Right, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's so, it's so real too. It's very accurate. It's very my dad because Jay really did a, a good job with that. And that was the other thing. My dad always said to me, he said, my drums and my cymbals are yours. They were always, when I die, they're yours. They go to you. As they should be. And I mean. it's great because some of those cymbals I had as a kid, uh-huh. they were lying around the house. I played them. In fact, when I first started playing, all I was playing was a bass drum, a snare drum, a hi-hat, and a couple of cymbals that my dad had left behind, and that was my drum kit. No toms, just, you know, bass, snare, hi-hat, and a couple of cymbals. And I had to give those cymbals back to my dad, because like, these are my great cymbals, and he'd give me his old crack ones in the turn, which is really nice of him. Uh-huh. Um, but then, so, when he died, I was like, you know what, those cymbals and those drums should go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I know they don't give you any money for it or anything, but but there needs to be something of my dad's because there's nothing of my dad's in the rock wall with that. You talk about so the, I, I, uh, not to interrupt. You talk about the green DW with the gold hardware. Yeah, yeah, the Royal Albert Hall kit, right? Right. Well, no, I think he sold that one. I think he had another one. Okay, that's. A, I think it was a. Yeah, I think the Royal Albert Hall kit. He it's 2005 kit. I think he had a newer a kit. I think DW gave him a new one. But the thing is, his symbols. It's right symbol and hi-hats for the same symbols he played in Cream. Really? So they're original. So, you know, because like, I've got the same, my hi-hats and my right symbol are the first symbols I've ever had. My hi-hats I've had since I was 10. Nice. And my right symbol I've had since I was 14. And they're still on my kit downstairs, what I play every day. That's same pretty symbol. cool. That's pretty cool. I think so. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's right symbols and hi-hats you don't really tend to crack because you're not, they're not the ones you're crashing on most of the time. No, not at all. Um, but unless you're playing in a heavy metal, yeah, heavy metal band, you might ruin your hi hats or something because you might be like pounding the hell out of them. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean those Zildjian hi hats and that rice symbol. I played the two S drumsticks, and I played in some heavy metal bands and all kinds of stuff. And somehow they never cracked. They stayed. They stayed good. Because they're Zildjian. Um, <laughs> I'm a Zildjian player myself. Zildjian, that's right. You know, <laughs> I love Zildjians um, myself. Uh, yeah, I mean it's amazing how old the, the quick beats. Because I got my quick beats when I was ten. Mm-hmm. And so, so that must be, that was 1979. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were given to me from my dad, so I don't think they were new. So the quick beats must have been around for a long time. I don't know when they started them, but, you uh, know. Well, the thing, I, I, I heard some recordings of you playing with the K uh, Dark Crashes. I went and just bought some myself because I was watching you play some of the videos, and they're on my kit right now. So I actually mirrored some of my similar setups off what you have on your kit as well. Oh, great. Well, the K's, I always love the K's because they're, they're, they've got a K on it, and my name's Kofi. So <laughs> I didn't think of I always, that. <laughs> I always liked that fact that I was like, hey, i got a K on my symbol, and my name's Kofi. But, but it was more, I mean, I've used, I kind of go back and forth between the A's and the K's, but I kind of like the K's because they have a, Body. they're just, they're just, yeah, they, they seem to be more, they're not so harsh. They seem to be more, um, warmer, warm, I suppose. Yeah, warmer body. And if you hit them lightly, they sound bigger for some reason. Right, yeah. So so I started getting into the Ks. I mean, I, my first Ks were when I was with Marriott. I got a pair of hi-hats for KZ. 
and he on the bottom and Kay on the top. Oh, nice. Decent and that's what Jordan said, you know, this is the thing I actually want to be using with Steve Matt. I'm like, okay, whatever, they're free, give them to me. <laughs> um, so, uh, because I mean, I, I was, I, I had a bracelet, the 22 count gold bracelet that my dad got from Ghana, Africa, that had my name inscribed on it and where my name came from and it was, it was 22 count gold bracelet. Now, when I was, must have been 14 or 15 years old. I was so broke and I, I, I didn't have a crash. I was short of crashing. But I swapped that for pasty 2002. Oh, really? I swapped this gold, 22 count gold bracelet for, for a pasty 2002 crash. But it only lasted a couple of years and it was gone. Oh. And it was like, but that's I was just poor. I, mean, I had nothing. So I had to, anything I had, I would swap it for drum stuff or, mm-hmm. or sell anything. I mean, when I got evicted from the house, the only thing I had was the drums. So when I was squatting and living in studios, all I had was my drum kit. And at some stages when I had to sleep outside, mm-hmm. I had to tie my drums to me so no one would steal them when I was asleep. Really? That's crazy. That's pretty but, um, yeah. Because I slept in squats and, and, you know, a couple of times, you know, when the studio was full and there was bands, you know, playing all night and there's parties going on, I didn't have nowhere to sleep. So I used to go into the park and, lay my trash case down and sleep on my trash case and, and tie my drums to me and stuff. So, oh, wow. you know, those were, were wild times, you know, when I was doing that. But, um, I'm very sorry. But I, kept, I, I sold everything, everything. I had nothing but clothes and my drums. That's all I had. Damn. So but, going, you know, going so forward, going forward, do you guys have anything booked in 2021 or is it still everything on hiatus for you? Well, it's, okay. So yeah, I never got to tell you what happened. So I went to London to do this, Memorial gig with Eric. It was with Eric and Clapton, Steve right? Gadd was playing. Oh, nice. Um, sorry? You said Eric Clapton, right? Yeah, it was Eric Clapton um, with his band, with Steve Gadd and uh, Ronnie Wood, Roger Waters, uh, Stevie Winwood. Wow. Um, you can see it on YouTube. If you go on YouTube, it's, it's on there. It's I watched like it. I watched Kobe it. Baker. Yeah. So it was a really good, I mean, the only problem was Eric didn't know how good of a drummer I was. Eric's not like, he's not, um, he doesn't go on YouTube or go on there or listen to musicians. He's very much in a bubble. Yeah. Um, so he had no idea. Um, he just knew that, you know, I was Ginger's son, but he didn't know, you know, anything about my history. Mm-hmm. So he said, at first he was like, yeah, me and you need to put this gig together. And I was like, yeah, great. You know what I mean? I've been doing the Queen stuff, so I'm good at it and everything. And he goes, well, I'm thinking about having my band and just having you come in for, you know, still on a few numbers. And I'm like, well, you know, it's your gig. It's Eric Clapton and Friends tribute to Ginger, so I'm, I'll just, you know, I'll just obey what you tell me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it got a little bit weird because when I showed up for rehearsals, I showed up, I, I was flown in for the last two days, and they kind of, already, everything was already, done and they said well would you want to sit and you can come and sit in with the other two drummers and play along on a song and I'm like really I said no I said this is my fucking dad's legacy here yeah I at least need to do toad yeah I at least need to do you know something of my dad's that I can actually you know play because dad is one of the most amazing drummers I've ever seen in my life but he doesn't play like my dad yeah and the other drummer they had um which is Eric's drum, I can't remember his name, um, black guy, I can't remember his name, but anyway, um, he was, he didn't play like my dad either, they were completely different styles, and I was like, this doesn't sound, if my dad was watching this right now, he'd be like, going nuts, you know, you know my dad, he doesn't, <laughs> my dad doesn't hold anything back, he would be like, smashing people up. Oh yeah, I saw the, I saw the rehearsal, the I saw the rehearsal video with him in the Buddy Rich Memorial, that was, it had me rolling, I mean, your dad was right. Right, <laughs> right, so yeah, my dad, my dad won't take shit, I mean, if anything's slightly not what he likes, he will stop, get off his kit, and punch someone out, or just fucking leave. <laughs> He's like, you know, I, he doesn't care if there's, there's a hundred thousand people watching him in the audience. He'll get off his kit and just walk off the stage if it's not right. Damn. And he's very, very picky. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I mean, I grew up. You know, I played drum duets with my dad, and I know that I had to play. And there's drum duets. There's a drum duet with me and my dad on YouTube in Parker, Colorado. Now I had to play under my dad. I had to play like exactly what my dad wanted to hear from me. I couldn't you know, put myself in there a little bit heavily here and there, but, but I had to play what my dad wanted to hear. And there's no way I could show my dad up. There's no way I was going to play 
you know, some lick that my dad doesn't play. I had to play my dad's licks and play them after he had played them. You know, they had to be, you know, it had to be. So that's the way my dad is. He doesn't want anybody stepping in on his, in his area. It's his area. And if you're going to play with him, you better play, you better support him. And that's what you're doing, supporting him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the way he was. So, you know, that's the way I had to play when I was with him. So, um, so anyway, I played this gig with Eric and everything, and it was went down really good. I played um, Pressland Warhog and um, did uh, Code. We basically do what you like. I came on and do what you like, mm-hmm. and uh, went into the drum solo. And Eric said to me, he said, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "I'll play do what you like, and I'll I'll then go into um, Code." Mm-hmm. He goes, "Yeah, but Code four and do what you like to five. I go, "Well, look, I'll go into four in the drum solo." So you've got uh, a time to go on to it. He goes, okay, great. So, so the plan was, as soon as, you know, do what you like, fade it out, I'd go into a 4-4 four, four drum solo, and it would be toad drum solo. And, I, and then he said, like, five minutes before the gig, the manager came and goes, you've only got five minutes. I said, five minutes? <laughs> I said, how the hell am I going to do my dad's drum solo in five minutes? <laughs> I was like, that's ridiculous. I go, come on, man. He goes, five minutes. You've got to be under five minutes. Eric said, that's it. And as long as the guitar player's happy, that's all we care about. I was like, wow, okay. This is really getting sucky. Uh-huh. So anyway, so I got up on stage and, and we get, we went to do what you like and I went into the drum solo. Now, when you're playing on stage, you have no idea what five minutes is. You no. don't know what timing is. And time goes faster when you're on stage than when you're off stage. Yeah. <laughs> so, to me, I'm like, I start my drum solo, I go, oh, fuck, am I over five minutes? And I'm turning around thinking, the whole drum solo, I'm turning around looking. And Eric's meant to leave the stage, and he didn't even leave. He stood sit, sit there watching me. And I was like, well, I don't know. And I, so I, I looked up, and then we into it, so I carried on going a bit longer. I looked up, and I was like, this must be five minutes, so I queued everybody at the end. Apparently, it was like four minutes. Uh-huh. So I could have played longer. And Eric said to me, he said, man, why didn't you play longer? I was going, because your manager... Gave me a time limit, and what the hell? I don't have a clock. I'm on stage playing a drum solo. I don't know how to make my drum solo within a certain time frame. And I had 20 minutes of stuff to get through in five minutes. Uh-huh. So, so it wasn't really a great drum solo. It was kind of a rushed. I kind of rushed through everything I could rush through as fast as I could to try and get it done. So yeah. I was a little bit unhappy with my solo. But anyway, I did that gig. And then I flew to New York and did the Howard Stern show. We did a thing on the Howard Stern show. So I hit London in the peak of when this pandemic was happening, then New York in the peak of when this happened. Then I got on a tour bus and started touring around America. Now, the funny thing was, was every town we played closed down the day after we played it. The pandemic hit them and they closed the town down. And we were in the bus one state ahead of all the closing down as it was closing down. Oh, man. And it was just like, we were like saying, oh, I got really sick. And a couple of, the singer got really sick. And we were like, I've never been this sick before. I mean, my eyes were all red and couldn't open my eyes. And I was coughing and I was on my chest. Oh, wow. And I was like, we must have the COVID. We must be the ones spreading this thing. Oh, no. They're going to like, there's going to be helicopters coming down. Because <laughs> we found the source. We found the bus. <laughs> this is the bus that's spreading it. No. So we were thinking, we were thinking, we're going we're gonna to get through this tour right before it closes down, but unfortunately it caught up and went ahead of us. And we got 14 days into a three month tour or two month tour, 14 days into a two month tour and it shut down and it shut down in Arizona. So we're now stuck in the tour bus in Arizona with no gigs. All the gigs are gone. The promoter's like screwed because he, when when you want a, a tour, how it works is, the promoter, the tour manager has to come up with the money to rent the bus, pay the the first wages, and he recoups his money about halfway through the tour, and then the last half of the tour is when everybody starts making their money. So the promoter got shafted because we got two weeks into a two-month tour, so he didn't even get any of his money back, and he had to pay the bus to drive three days cross-country back to um, where where it came from, wherever it was, uh, I can't remember, somewhere in the Midwest. Anyway, so we had to pay the driver and the bus three days, and it's $1,000 a day for those buses. So we had to pay like, you know, three grand on top of losing everything, and I had to ride the bus for three days back to Indiana, 
oh, you know, on a bus, no gigs. Um, but the guitar player, the guitar players all flew. The guitar, the guitar player we hired flew back, flew back to Idaho. The guitar player from England, Will, he flew back to London. Uh, the bass player was from LA, so he just, just hopped his, his wife took him back to LA. So it was only me, me and the road crew on the bus. Mm-hmm. And I had to obviously drive the bus three days back and then rode all the gear into my truck or the van. I went to the van, huh. drive it up to Indiana. Um, so I, I ended up keeping all the gear. So, so yeah, we got started. So basically, I'm making, how I live is I go on the road for two or three months and I live off that for six months. Uh-huh. I, I stay home and I'm working my studio and playing the local gigs. Then I go back on the road and make a bunch of money and live off it. Mm-hmm. So, I got locked down with no, all my pay was gone, all the money I was expecting to live on was gone, and came back to my house thinking, well, what am I gonna do? And luckily, my girlfriend signed me up on unemployment and stuff, and I got that for a little bit, but oh, cool. now it's like a hundred bucks a week. Oh, and it's man. like, that's, that's not gonna keep me alive. And, and they're saying, they're telling us that tour is being rescheduled for March and April of 2021, but with the lockdown and how it's going now, who knows? Yeah, it's, it's just gonna, no one has a mirror, mirror ball right now, so it's kind of his guesswork at this point. Yeah, I mean, and I, we were playing theaters, so the theaters are, you know, obviously, you know, the ones that got affected the most because there's a big lot of people. I mean, the industry we're in, the council on getting as many people you can in the small space you can. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like completely the opposite of, of what is expected today. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen in the music business, but I mean, I'm hoping that all the theaters are not all going to go under from not being able to get money. And all, of, all those people that work in the theaters are probably yeah. suffering too, you know? Yeah. I have some friends that are kind of on the down low for that. And I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that is affecting everyone on the bad side, but I think when it does come back and it will, I think everyone's going to bounce back. It's going to be a lot of energy going into it. I think there's going to be a lot of inter- opportunities, but when and where I can, I, you know, I'd just be guessing if I told you, yeah, I mean, you know, I hope I hope it comes back because if it doesn't come back next year, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm supposed I'm doing session work and stuff, but it's kind of hard doing session work because you have to play some people's music, which is awful, yeah. you know. And then then they've got you on drums, and you don't know how good you know these people are. They send you a guide. Some of these people just send me cover music. Go, Can you just play this drum beat for me? I'm gonna write a song over it. I'm like, okay, but, you know, what is it going to be like when you've written, and you've got my name, you've got me on drums. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done, I've done a lot of sessions over the years where people have sent me stuff, and I've done the same. I've spent so much time on the drum track. I've done this great drum track, and then they get a couple of Bozios play on it, and it's awful, and they're all out of time, and then it makes you sound like shit. Yeah. And you're thinking, wow, and you're putting this out there. You're releasing this as a CD with my name on it, and it's, awful yeah. and it's like so then you have to worry about when you do sessions what, what you know how what you do do you just not work if it's crap and then you only do the good ones and those are really hard to come by and all the really good musicians are pro musicians so they don't have any money it's normally the you know the people that are you know, working for amazon the whole you know every, all day and then they they get on their little keyboard and they're the ones that want you to play drums on their stuff yeah so, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of a, a hard thing to try and figure out. And I also take a long time doing session work. I, I like to take my time on a track. I like to do you know, three or four takes of it. And, you know, so then sometimes I'm like, I want to try this beat out. And I want to try this beat. And sometimes I take like a week on a song just to find how I want to play it so it sounds not like everybody else would play it. You know, yeah. just put something, you know, my little spark into it. So that sometimes takes me, you know, two or three days to do. So if I'm getting paid, you know, two, three hundred dollars a track and it's taking me a week to do it, that's two hundred bucks a week. Yeah, yeah. That's um, going to be rough. Which is not going to keep me alive, you know? Yeah. Well, I know yeah. I, I know you got some things going on tonight, but Kofi, I, I really want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, for session work, what's the best place okay. to reach out to you? Uh, do you have a, on your website, I, I, I assume? Yeah. It's always, yeah. I mean, Kofi Baker... Uh, dot com or Kofi Baker Facebook or Kofi Baker anything Kofi Baker if you normally get hold of me um, through somebody but the the Facebook is probably the safest way because my girlfriend texts that and she's always oh, nice. on it if you just go to you know message me on Kofi Baker on Facebook or 
um, you know, anything like that. Instagram, like my girlfriend keeps track of that too, so you can get me on that. Okay, and your book, you um, can pick it up on Amazon, right? The Forgotten Foot? Yeah, the book's on Amazon, The Forgotten Foot, um, Hal Leonard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really good book because it's it kind of takes you from the beginner to advanced. So a beginner can use it and an advanced player can use it. Yeah, I'm going to so pick it up myself. Yeah, I mean, it's good because, it, it's, 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 again, it's how you put things against what you've got. There's a, there's a lot of melody reading pages, which I took from a, a book called The New Breed, which was a, a really good book. David, but, that's um, a David Gibaldi that book, right? David- I don't know who, who did it. I think it was, uh, I know it's called The New Breed. Okay. Um, and it has basically melody reading, where it writes out a melody, and it has you play... A straight beat and has you play the melody with your left hand, then it has you play the beat and play the melody with your right hand, it has you play the, play the melody with your right foot, and so on. So you get to play everything different ways around. So I did that kind of concept a little bit, put some melody reading in there, and said, look, you know, basically, you know, you could pick any ostinato or anything you want with your feet and play this melody over it, and, and it will give you something to, you know, because when you, if you're doing something yourself, Mm-hmm. It seems like say, okay, I'm going to play this ostinato and I'm going to jam over it. That's great, but when you're jamming over it, you're only playing stuff that you know over it. Mm-hmm. So you really want to play stuff that you don't know. Like it might be something really simple, like a, a offbeat eighth note stuff that might be hard to do. But if you're just jamming, you're not going to you're not going to play those parts because that's not something that's going to happen because you're playing what you know. Mm-hmm. So it's always really good to play stuff you don't know when you're practicing. I always say if you're practicing and you sound really good, you're not practicing. Yeah. You're just playing. Yeah. You know, if you're practicing, <laughs> you should be working on the stuff that you can't play and the uncomfortable stuff is the stuff you want to work on. And that's what I always do. I'm always, when I'm practicing, I hate people listening to me because I'm working on something I can't do. Yeah. I don't want someone outside the rehearsal room listening to me going, oh, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, well, uh, well, uh, so we'll have the show on. Um, like I said, reach out to uh, Kofi. I mean, Kofi. Sorry, Kofi. Uh, we'll be on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. Okay. You want to hear the show? Like I said, uh, okay. Reach out to Kofi, and uh, we'll, we'll, he's a really nice guy. This is a great talk. I'd love to have you on again sometime here. Yeah, great. Yeah. I yeah I know Sounds we could, we could talk hours and hours and hours about drum care, but I yeah, know. I tend to go off on tangents, so you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, I just want to say thank you so much, man, for coming on the show. Okay, great. Thank you. Let me tell you guys about the stuff called Groove Juice. The stuff is amazing. I've been using it since honestly I can remember. It's kept my drums and cymbals looking pristine for shows or just simply practicing at home. Most drummers and some of the great drum techs around the world use this stuff and proudly endorse it. Please reach out to your local retailer or order online with Groove Juice.